Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Euro Neely, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Law. We'll be discussing his article, Successor CEOs, which was recently published in the Boston University Law Review. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Euro, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. We're discussing your article today, Successor CEOs, which, as I mentioned in the intro, was recently published in the Boston University Law Review. To set the stage a little bit, you are delving into a more focused area on an issue that gets a good amount of attention, and that is whether or not CEOs and chairpeople of the board should be the same person or whether those two positions should be separated. Just to set the stage a little bit, could you describe some of the criticisms or defenses of this arrangement where you have the CEO also being the chair of the board? What efforts have we seen in the last two decades or so uh, to separate those two offices, and what trends are we seeing in that area? Yeah, so uh, um, well, this has become um, maybe one of the flagship governance issues for a lot of investors. Um, I think, you know, traditionally, the CEO of a company was also serving as the chairman or chairwoman of the board and basically allows, you know, the, the proponents of that argument basically saying, well, if you trust the CEO to run the company, you should give them the ability to really kind of be in charge of how the company operating, not also, or not only in the day-to-day operationals, but also in the board work, really guiding the discussion in the board work in a, in a I would say, uh, more informed way. And I think it traces back to the, the role of the board in, in companies in the past where the board was really expected to provide more of advising role, connections, less monitoring the, the management. And if that's the case, then it makes sense for the CEO to really kind of be running the show also in the boardroom. But uh, what we've seen in the last, uh, I would say, couple of decades is really a, a shift in the expectation of investors of what the board should do and kind of the the rise of what's called the monitoring board, the board that is supposed to scrutinize the actions of management in a more effective way. And if that's the case, then there should be a question of whether we want the boardroom to be uh, also controlled by the CEO. And if we don't, then there's a case for having an independent chairperson providing counterbalance to um, you know, the natural authority of the CEO, the CEO is armed with more knowledge and resources than directors as far as the company goes. And if we want to kind of balance the skills, having an independent chair that can dictate some of the board agenda is an important facet. And we, we, we've seen that um, institution investors have been supporting this separation of, of the roles uh, more increasingly. And in the paper, I bring more detailed stats. But um, nowadays, we're talking about uh, roughly a majority of the S&P 1500 companies having a separation of of the roles where the CEO and the chair are two different people and the chair is considered independent director. Just today, uh, you know, um, it came in the news, Elliott Management has, um, you know, taken a huge stake in, uh, in AT&T. And, you know, one of the things that they have, from a governance perspective, one of the things they have called for is the separation of the roles of CEO and chair in AT&T, where it's currently combined. And we, you know, in the little bit more recent past, uh, Johnny Diamond in, uh, in JP Morgan was fighting for his, uh, maintaining his position as the chairman of the board. So these are things that we see investors becoming more aggressive about 
about, you know, there is a symbolic value to it, even more so maybe than the actual value in Makito Kalobit, but that later, but um, having that separation and taking taking that role from the CEO basically sends a message that, you know, it's not all at, at the CEO's hands and, and, you know, um, the king has fallen, so to speak, as far as the ability of the CEO to really dictate everything that is going on in the management. So in your paper, you note that typically if a company is going to split up the CEO and chair positions, uh, typically we think that that will mean that the same person will remain CEO and a new person will be brought in as uh, the independent chair. It might be a lead independent director, might be promoted to chairman, for example. But in your paper, you discuss uh, another alternative, which is that the same person remains chair and a new person is brought in as CEO. Could you discuss that concept, uh, what some of the benefits and costs might be of having a, a former CEO as, as chair? And apart from maybe some of those benefits or some of those risks or costs, why do firms decide to transition to that structure? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I was surprised how common it actually is to have this uh, scenario you just described where instead of having the CEO give up her role as chairperson, we have the opposite where the CEO basically gives up the CEO position and remains as chair. And it's, it's kind of almost counterintuitive. We talk about the separation and when you just ask people who are dealing with the field, the presumption is kind of what the, the, the what I just mentioned, the, the Jimmy Diamond battle, where uh, the attempt was to take the chairperson position away from the CEO. But what I kind of um, stumbled upon when I kind of worked on some other projects and kind of dived into a little bit more in detail on this project is this really a significant number of companies that do the opposite, where the CEO basically transitions out from the CEO position, but maintains the chair position and brings in a new CEO in her in her foot you now in replacement. It's interesting. It before before my paper came out, I think it was uh, under discussed. It wasn't really highlighted as a kind of a significant route. Although there is a significant number of companies that uh, have that route. I think uh, in the paper I talk about around over 200 companies in the S&P 1500 with that structure in place as of 2016. And um, you know, I, I think the benefits are. Um, there are several benefits, I would say. So the, the first, from a succession plan uh, perspective, is especially in the context of companies with a controlling shareholder or a very, you know, founder CEO or somebody who really had a held a strong grip on a company, allowing that person to transition out from the CEO position but still maintaining some sort of a um, connection to the company or influence uh, by remaining as the chairperson of the board is basically an, a good way to encourage those people to give up, right? So if you have a company where there's a founder, the founder has really contributed a lot as a CEO, but either that founder um, is um, becoming a little bit older and less qualified to kind of run a business in a changing environment or any other multiple issues that uh, happen, the company might be better off with hiring a professional CEO to run the company. But, you know, if the founder doesn't really want to vacate the seat, it's hard to do it. So giving that option of, you know what, you can stay as chair, but let's put somebody else as a CEO is a good way to kind of start that succession process and really uh, transition the company into the next generation. 
It's also, you know, having a CEO that transitioned into becoming a chair really create a boardroom that is, you know, equipped with people who can really either challenge or verify that what the new CEO is doing is, you know, is, is okay and good and really bring this kind of authority figure into the chairperson position that um, an outside director who is this main appointed as chair might not have. So that expertise that the former CEO now chair has is could be very valuable both in advising and mentoring an incoming CEO, but also in monitoring and making sure that that uh, incoming CEO is doing the best they could for the company. The flip side, obviously, is the concern, right? So the flip side is that if we let departing CEO to remain in control of the company, the question is, is the new CEO just a puppet of the of the departing CEO? Is he or she being handpicked just to carry out whatever the outgoing CEO wanted to do. And it's just a camouflage effect where we say that we have a separation of CEO and chair, but in reality, we have this powerful chairperson who controls also the CEO office. Um, so that, that, that could be a concern. It could be a concern as far as, you know, maybe we have two management people, people who are very deeply connected to the management team, basically running the show and really making it hard for the independent directors to challenge them. So the power structure in the board room could be suffering from having these two executive uh, people, one current and one uh, past, that um, are still running the show, both in the boardroom and the company level. And to make things a little bit worse is the fact that a lot of companies, as I looked into more carefully, um, are actually treating the executive that has became the chair and um, had served in the past as the CEO of the company, they treat them as independent directors and independent chairs. So it's not uh, abnormal to see a company where you had somebody serving as a 15 years as a CEO, then transitioning into a chair position, and then three years after they transition into the chair position, they'll be declared as independent directors and independent chairs. That is a concern because if we look at it just statistically, that company is basically saying, well, we have a separation of the roles, we have a separate chair, and that chair is independent. If you look at it more closely, that independent chair is actually a long-time CEO of the company, has been retired for three years, but that doesn't really change the question whether he's really independent of the company or not. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a good background of, of this this concept of successor CEOs. And I, I wonder if you could discuss some of the research questions that you had going into this this paper and what some of the methodologies were that you used to, to answer those questions. Yeah, so I think basically this, this whole paper is coming against this backdrop of institutional concern and expectation that companies will start separating these roles and that the board will really uh, be used as a countermeasure to the executive power that companies have, right? So we see this uh, increasing support and increasing proposals Two companies requesting that they'll separate the roles, both um, by institutional investors, by individual shareholders, and you know even activist um, investors, as I just mentioned, with alert management, for instance, with AT&T. Really, this is becoming kind of like you know the easy, low-hanging fruit type of request. The first thing we want you to do is basically cede your power as a chairman of the board and just retain your CEO position. So I was I was curious to see well what is if if the concern is really making sure that we have this board that is effective in monitoring management and more that is uh, has more independent than it has been is that the case and then looking really at these two channels of separation I started to kind of 
question that uh, uh, assumption and basically observing that we have this kind of request for a separation, but if we don't really pay attention to the details of how the separation is achieved, then we might miss the reason that we have requested or um, aspired to have the separation in the first place. So that's kind of like what I was both kind of pondering about when I started and kind of found myself concerned with when I started to dive into the data. As far as what I've done, so the first thing I did is look at kind of what institutional movement towards separation has been and how it has increased uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. So I, I looked at data at uh, institutional investors' uh, voting patterns and uh, showed a proposal that was submitted and observed kind of how the support, um, even by those passive mutual funds like BlackRock and, and, and State Street and like um, Fidelity, has increased to, towards those type of uh, proposals and they are um, more increasingly are in favor of those types of requests of companies. Obviously, there are cases where um, institutional investors uh, have decided not to support those proposals. Uh, some companies, it might create more damage than good, and uh, you know I can understand that. But overall, as a trend, we see more support to those proposals. So against this backdrop, when we see more institutional support and expectation that companies will separate the roles, and as a result, we see more and more companies, at least on paper, declaring that they have separated the roles. It was interesting to kind of go and, and, and look at um, how these things actually manifest in, in, in reality. So um, I had a very detailed data set on kind of the um, structure of the boards in, in uh, the S&P 1500 uh, companies, and I looked uh, over a data of seven years to see really uh, the transition uh, for um, the chairperson of the board and the CEO. And what I've observed is that uh, really pretty constant phenomenon where uh, companies roughly 30 to 40 a year really have this successful CEO structure where um, it's not um, having the CEO giving up the chairperson position, but the vice versa scenario. And it's been kind of steady over time. And, you know, as a cumulative um, effect as uh, roughly, I would say, 15 to 20 percent of the S&P 1500 companies with that structure. One important thing I wanted to kind of rule out, um, and that's something that when you look at practitioner literature um, has been mentioned often, is that some companies tend to do the transition to the CEO position in a two-stage structure. So let's say a company is appointing a new CEO. And the first thing they'll do is just give the CEO position, but won't give the chairperson position to that CEO, just kind of like making sure everything is going smoothly, having this kind of like overlap position for six months, kind of like pass the baton um, process. But then after after a few months, then that uh, CEO will also take over the, the chairperson role and uh, serve us both. So I wanted to kind of rule out that this is not just something temporary mm -hmm. that happens when you have transition, but rather a more fixed kind of structure or decision about the structure of the company's leadership, um, uh, a more kind of deliberate uh, um, choice. And, you know, in the paper, I bring data, but a, a significant part of companies really have this structure uh, for the long term. So only 28% of the XEO chairs, uh, people who transitioned um, into uh, the basically were CEOs, then only retained the chair position, did it for less than one year. So basically, close to, um, you know, over 70% of the cases, it's something that lasted for more than a year. And in many cases, um, in the, my data is only seven years um, long, but uh, I have roughly um, 
16 to 17 percent of the cases where it was for the entire seven years. So a significant amount of, of the cases, uh, all of the cases really have this structure for the long term, not just a short kind of transition where the CEO gives up first the CEO position and then a few a few months later also gives up the chair position for the incoming CEO. So it's not just kind of a transitional, um, normal transition type of uh, scenario, but it is something more permanent where the CEO does give up the CEO position, but stay for the long term as the chairperson position. And that's interesting. And if if this isn't a transition to a stage retirement, perhaps for the former CEO chair or a, a training exercise for the new CEO yeah. to have a, a predecessor there to serve as an advisor and a, a monitor, what, what might be motivating companies moving in that direction and, and keeping this structure for uh, over a year, as you mentioned? Yeah, so I, I think I already kind of alluded to it uh, in the beginning, but I think one reason is um, this is an easier way to nudge uh, or slightly uh, push existing CEO to kind of transition out, right? So instead of making it ugly, um, trying to force out a CEO, especially if that CEO is also a controlling shareholder, which is impossible, then, you know, giving that option of like, well, you know what, why won't you take a step back from like being a CEO, but you'll still, still be the chair, could be an attractive proposition. And let's take the case of Chipotle, for instance, you know, the, the founder of Chipotle else basically was under pressure because the company was not doing well, investors weren't happy. So what he did, he took a step back, he stayed in a in a very influential role as the chairperson of the board, but he brought Brian Nichols from, from Taco Bell to run the company. And that has worked out amazingly for, for Chipotle, really transitioned them into a, a more successful route. And I think this is kind of a, a, a good anecdotal example of how this can play out in the context of somebody who really kind of had tight control on the company and you really need to incentivize them to agree to kind of give up the CEO position. Um, I think a second scenario is, I think I brought an example of Alibaba where the, the founder or CEO kind of said, well, I'm not connected to kind of like the new generation anymore. So I'm going to step back and I get, I bring something else that is more connected to really run the day-to-day operation. So it could be something that, you know, the founder himself or herself feel that is uh, appropriate to do while still retaining the ability to kind of influence the day-to-day operation through the chair position. So I think those are kind of legitimate scenarios when this happened, or, you know, you can have a scenario where somebody really wants to um, retire, but doesn't really want to retire quickly, but like a more gradual way. So that's another option, basically giving up the more demanding role of a CEO, but maintaining some visibility as a chairperson. Um, and, you know, there are benefits in that. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, having that person who has extensive experience with the company staying on board in an advising role to an incoming CEO that is uh, maybe no more green and doesn't really know everything that is happening could be very beneficial if it's being used correctly. So you offered a few uh, examples of uh, the types of Companies that might do this split, this transition, the founder is going to step back from being CEO or a controlling shareholder is, is also a CEO or a, a major shareholder is also the CEO and, and needs to be incented to step back. Did you find in the data that there were any sort of common characteristics among companies that do this sort of transition, the types of companies that do it, or even the the character or the the characteristics of the CEO slash chairperson who uh, decided to, to undergo a transition like this? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, the short answer is that I didn't, with the exception of looking on who is coming on board. So I'll expand on that in a second. Um, there are two two limitations. One, you know, the sample size is relatively smaller, so 
So when you're talking about like 30 to 40 companies a year, uh, empirically it's hard to have like hard conclusions about the type of companies that do it. I think it's a mix, and I think some of it is driven by, it's driven by a lot of things. I think one of the things that I think the paper is really calling for um, and expecting institutional investors to do is have a more nuanced approach where we actually examine a company by company and looking at how this transition came about and whether this makes sense for that company, right? So if it's a Chipotle and you get to have Stephen Ellis not running the company anymore, that might make sense. If it's a company where um, it just, uh, you know, the company is under pressure to um, improve its governance structure, so they just do it to kind of like save face and say, well, we separated the roles, but in reality, the CEO, the exiting CEO basically appoints one of the tenants to run the company, but still controls everything in reality. That's probably not a good idea. So I think this article has kind of like a, a call for the, the virtue of individual analysis for each company. What I did look at is who is replacing the, the outgoing CEO. And that was a concerning finding in the sense that the majority of incoming CEOs in those successful CEO structures, so when somebody leaves the position, 70% of them came from within the company and were long-time executives of the company. So it's not that like you bring fresh blood from the outside. It looks like the concern that you're bringing somebody who is really loyal to you to kind of like continuing doing what you expect them to do is possibly strong, um, a strong outcome here. So um, I did look at that. Um, it will be interesting, though, to kind of like have a more nuanced approach and, and look a little bit more about data about who are the companies or like what type of industries are more common uh, to have uh, a successful CEO structure in it. But um, in this paper, I didn't really dive into it. What are some of the open policy questions or implications for this sort of practice of the CEO chair becoming just the chair and, and, and appointing somebody else as CEO? What what might we need to do research-wise to answer some of those questions or uh, respond to some of those implications? Yeah, so I think, well, there's, there's various policy implications. I think the, the first, maybe the key observation here that I hope um, investors and policymakers will kind of take is that, you know, we used to think, or a lot of people are thinking about separation of CEO and chair in the kind of like the you know, the first route that we started the discussion with where, you know, we forced the CEO to give up her, um, her position as chairperson of the board. But in reality, that's not always the case. So understanding that as, as kind of uh, as the empirical data shows, it, it, it's actually quite common to be the opposite. And if that's the case, we need to be aware of that. So I think that's kind of like a starting point. Now, if that is the case, then that that brings about a few other um, policy implications. The first thing I kind of argue in the paper, and I think is important, is really understanding the independence proposition and kind of presumption, right? So the push from investors' perspective to separate those roles is really premised on, I think, expressly by calling for greater independence of the board, right? So we're saying, well, we don't want the CEO to serve as chair of the board because we want somebody independent running the boardroom in a way that would allow the boardroom to provide effective monitoring to management. And I think this uh, my project really kind of contrasts that with the reality where, in a lot of cases, this separation really doesn't bring a more independent role. It might actually bring the opposite, right? So when you have both the CEO and the chairperson of the board, both can being longtime CEOs of the company, and then being declared as independent board uh, slash independent chair because after three years, uh, the New York Stock Exchange allows you to define yourself as independent director, then, you know, we have this severe camouflage issue where if you don't look closely at those companies, you'll just say, well, those companies 
crossed the you know past the threshold as far as their independence governance uh, uh, regime, and that is not the case if you look at it more closely because the person who is described as independent chair is actually long time CEO of the company who just hasn't been doing it for the last three years. So I think it's an important observation and a call for institutional investors to really look beyond kind of the statistical aggregate into specifically each company's circumstances and the past of the chair and kind of making sure that what companies are telling you is really what you think is making sense because companies are allowed to tell you that somebody is independent after three years, but I think most institutional investors will agree that that's probably not what they wanted out of that um, transition into separate roles. I think the second point is the value, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll expand on it in the future project, but the value of the lead independent director. So we haven't talked a lot about it um, um, during this podcast, but you know, uh, companies that don't separate the roles, that have uh, um, both CEO and chair in the same position, or the same person serving those both positions, um, have been urged and more increasingly appoint what is called the lead independent director. So a person who is not the chair of the board, but gets a little bit more um authority or a title that allows the, the board to basically counteract the power of the CEO slash chair. And those independent directors are increasingly being relied on upon by institutional investors. So the expectation is, well, if you don't separate the roles, at least have a good independent director in place. And I think the issue is that we really, um, both in practice and in academic uh, discourse, we really haven't really drilled down what this independent director do, does, and what is the role supposed to have. What do we need to make do to make sure that that person is really able to do what his task or she is task with, which is basically provide a counterbalance to the executives in the boardroom. And I think um, this is uh, especially potentially problematic in cases where we have companies with a CEO and ex-CEO serving as the chair, and then we put a lead independent director there. But really, the question is whether that lead independent director can really achieve the goal that institutional investors and public as a whole is expecting that company to have. What takeaways would you offer or what takeaways would you like uh, academic listeners or people who are governance stakeholders, whether they're investors, whether they're working for a proxy advisory firm or, or have a, uh, another interest in governance to take from this, this paper? Well, I, I think the, the biggest takeaway is that the use of benchmarks in corporate governance discourse is useful, but only to a certain extent. So I think the success of CEO phenomenon is, is, is really, you know, indicative of maybe a larger picture where we kind of expect companies to clear some sort of a, uh, artificial or fictive threshold, and then we treat them as good governance actors or not so good governance actors. And I think the picture is much more nuanced, both in, in, in the issue of director independence and in other realms of, of corporate governance. And I think what this project really shows us, it's really, uh, it's important to have cumulative data and kind of observe stuff um, from a bird's eye view, but also diving into the actual channels to which these changes are happening is an important observation in itself because that will give us a more uh, accurate picture of how things are actually operating in reality. And that is especially important if we have an objective, right? So in this case, the objective was to have boards that are more independent. And I think what my project shows that there's a question mark whether 
if you use the successful CEO structure, whether you get this more independent director or um, structure, it might be beneficial for other reasons. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have the structure. I'm trying to highlight for investors that if you just look at it from a bird's eye view, you might miss the fact that it's not giving you what you would hope. Our guest today has been Yaron Neely, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Wisconsin Law School. We discussed his recent article, Successor CEOs, which was recently published in the Boston University Law Review. I'll include a link to that article in the show notes for today's episode. Yaron, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.